open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back. We have uh, Chris Odom. He's CTO at Monetas. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you. So can you give us a little bit of a brief kind of about us for uh, Monetas? This interview, uh, for those listening, will probably blow your mind. So, you know, just strap in for this one. Uh, Monetas is a company that I started with Johan Geffers in 2012 to commercialize open transactions. Open transactions is open source code, uh, open source financial crypto system, and Monotos is building commercial software to take advantage of that. Yeah, and this is serious applied financial cryptography. So, like you have uh, Chami and Cash, right? Yes, yeah. You've got these voting pools, federated servers. Eventually, you'll have federated auditing going on of all these servers. Can you explain how all of this? kind of place together, like give us the, the big overview picture of like this suite of applied financial cryptography tool. Well, first of all, look at some of the systems or services that are being offered in the Bitcoin world. For example, look at Bitstamp. Bitstamp is a service. It's a company and it's operated by people and they take Bitcoins in. And the question is, if Bitcoin is fully decentralized, then why are people using some centralized service? Exactly. Like like Satoshi issues us this trustless currency where we can hold the private keys and what's the first thing that the Bitcoin community does? They run and centralize with Mt. Gox. But the question is why? Why do they do this? Because they're getting something out of it, right? They're getting this new functionality out of it. Like for example, with Mt. Gox or Bitstamp, the reason that people trust them to hold their Bitcoins is because that enables people to do market trading. They couldn't just do market trading with their Bitcoin client by itself. And so then they trust their Bitcoins with this service so that they can do market trading. And so we want to be able to allow people to do these kinds of things, uh, market trading and, and other functionality, but without having to trust the server to hold the money. Okay. So lower so trust, but you know, get that functionality. Obviously, there's a need for that functionality or people wouldn't be using these services. Now, and how do we actually accomplish this? Bitstamp needs to have the private keys, right? To give the other side of the trade uh, Bitcoins in exchange for your dollars or your euros. But you're talking about being able to actually accomplish this market trading in a completely trustless way where the Bitcoins don't leave your possession of the, in terms of the private keys until you've got possession of dollars. Or maybe that trade can even happen atomically, right? Well, that's, that's not exactly accurate. Um, so let, let's delve into how this works with this federation of servers. Now we're, we're broadcasting around these uh, digitally, signed, digitally signed receipts. Well, let's say, for example, that you had 10 or 15 different sites, and they're all normally in business competition with each other. And they form a multi-sig voting pool to store the money. 
And so that way no individual server has the ability to steal that money out of the pool. So the user is not storing the money. He transfers the money, the, say the Bitcoins, into the pool. Okay. So from that point, the user does not have physical control over the key for, for that Bitcoin anymore because he put it into the voting pool. And now it would take a vote, X out of Y vote, of those servers to release funds back out of the pool again. So he loses possession of the Bitcoin. Right. Now, what about the pool? Like, we have X out of Y. How do we make sure that they can't steal the Bitcoins? Well, first of all, the individual server that you're using definitely can't steal the Bitcoins. Well, why, why is that? I let's, mean, let's you, say, for example, that, uh, you know, Mt. Gox had been in a pool. And instead of giving my Bitcoins directly to Mt. Gox, I had put them in the pool. So Mt. Gox couldn't individually take those coins out of the pool because he would have to get the other servers to vote to approve it. Now, a majority of those servers could steal the money. Okay, so that would be right? X out of Y. Right. Like say, 3 out of 5 or, or say whatever. 12 out of 15. 12 out of 15. If 12 out of 15 collude and gang up, they could steal the money. And so there's still risk. But it's just drastically lower risk than what people are trusting right now. Or it's reallocated much more widely. Right. Yeah, distributed across multiple jurisdictions, business competitors, so on. So these 15, this 12 out of 15, it might be like Kraken and Bitstamp and right. uh, the big major exchange players that are all holding a fraction of the total funds being held on all these different exchanges right. so that no single exchange can steal either the funds of their own customers or the funds of any of the other exchanges' customers right. without all putting together. Right. Now, how do, how do we actually get this to take place? Because you're saying you send it into a server or servers. You know, we, we've got this federation of servers going on. Like, how does that function? How does that help reduce risk and make things even more trustless? Well, I mean, like I said, right now, people send their funds to a single server like uh, Mt. Gox or Bitstamp or one of these places, and then they're just trusting this individual entity to hold the money. Having to have collusion between 10 or 12 entities to steal the money is much safer than just trusting a single entity not to steal the money. So there's this term of programmable trust, like programmable money is what Bitcoin is. And you've said before that Bitcoin is like the invisible glue to move money from like one server to another. Right. When we're talking about this concept of a server, like how how narrow or broad can that definition be? Like it can be an actual computer server, like the, the piece of hardware, or you could even think of it in terms of like money in a particular country, like Argentina. Like, ha can you kind of explain this concept of how we're abstracting on top of this term of server uh, and, and then this invisible glue concept? Well, I mean, a server can be a logical server that's really a load balancer that has a thousand servers behind it. But I just think of Bitcoin as a way to move funds from anything to anything else. And they could be completely disparate things. You know, like, for example, you could move Bitcoins out of one kind of system and into a open transaction system or a Monotos system. And then you could take funds out of the Monotos voting pool and you can send them to uh, a business in some other country. And everybody's using their own different software and Bitcoin sort of interoperates with all of them. 
So it's the invisible glue letting you take your, your pesos out of Argentina and move them onto the voting pool that's got the keys being held among the 12 or 15, like the Bitstamp and Kraken, etc. Well, right. I mean, those are actually great examples. Like- because you can't do that with dollars or with euros, right? No, you can't. I mean, it's not possible at all. Well... Those all those service uh, all those services are a perfect example of what we're talking about because if you look at Bitstamp and Kraken and these different places, they're most likely all running different software. Right? They all have Kraken has their own software and Bitstamp has their own software and so on, and yet they're all able to send value to each other. And so that's a perfect example of how Bitcoin is this universal glue that can be sent between all of them, be used to move money between any different businesses or between any different countries. So I mean, we're here in the Latin American Bitcoin conference, and there are people upstairs who provide a way to use Bitcoin for Venezuelans to send money abroad. And normally that's quite a difficult thing for Venezuelans to do. Or Argentinians. Yeah, exactly. Or Brazilians, for that matter. They, they also have difficulties. Uh, dollars can come in, but reals, they can't go out. Right. <laughs> uh, but Bitcoin makes it much easier to be moving that value into or out of these different servers, whether it's logical server or whether it's a country or a business or that central point. I mean, you could basically use Bitcoin to send any form of value. Like, uh, you know, let's say I'm in Brazil, which I am right now, and I want to send some gold to South Africa. So I take a gold ounce and sell it for Bitcoin, then send the Bitcoin to South Africa, and then someone on the other side takes the Bitcoin and buys gold. So you've just effectively wired an ounce of gold from Brazil to South Africa. And so much in the same way, you can use it to wire anything. You can use it to wire dollars. You know, you could sell some dollars for Bitcoin and then send the Bitcoin to another country and then buy dollars again on the other side. But let's delve into this a little bit deeper with the applied financial cryptography. Like people could just do that with dollars, right? Or, or with gold. But the problem is that the balance on your centralized entity isn't necessarily mathematically provable. Can you kind of delve into that a little bit? Like when we're talking about Monetos, all these balances are provable, mathematically. Yeah. Can you help people kind of understand that a little bit more? Well, certainly. The piece that you have to accept for this to all work is that digital signatures cannot be forged. So if I have my private key, I'm able to make a digital signature and no one else can forge that signature. Mathematically, because that's a big, long number, that private key. Well, I mean, to forge the signature, you would basically have to break public key cryptography. And I I don't know if anyone's going to be doing that anytime soon. So public key cryptography is is about as secure as you can get. And the foundation for trust on the Internet. Yeah. If that's broken, then you don't know whether you're logging into your Wells Fargo account or not, or your Bank of America account or whatever. Like, if public key, private key cryptography is broken. Yeah, I mean, military-grade encryption is about as secure as something can be in this universe. And so in open transactions, if you're going to perform a transaction, your client software is going to create this transaction and digitally sign it. And then it sends it to the notary, which countersigns it and sends it back to you. That becomes your receipt. And so because the notary doesn't have your private key, then the notary is unable to forge your signature. And because... You sign this transaction first, and the notary can't forge your signature, so therefore the notary is unable to falsify any transactions. He can't just make a fake transaction and put your signature on it, because he doesn't have your key. And so because of that, 
the notary servers and open transactions and monetas are not able to falsify transactions. And also, your balance appears on your last signed receipt. So the server is also not able to falsify your balance. Or, e or even change your balance, for that matter, well, yeah, without exactly your signature. That's exactly the point. Yeah, like if, if you look at, say, Mt. Gox or PayPal or one of these systems, I'm sure the server operator can just go in their database and change the number to whatever number that he wants. But in, in the Monotoss software, the server operator is unable to change your balance without your signature, and he's unable to falsify any of your transactions. So the sysadmin just doesn't <laughs> doesn't have those uh, permissions. Right, I mean, it can process these transactions, it can notarize them, but it can't falsify them. Right, because he doesn't have that private key. That's right. Now, so we, we've talked about the notary. Uh, what about the concept of this auditor? Why would that be important for this federation of servers? Well, because the notary is unable to change balances and falsify transactions, it's pretty airtight. The only potential crime left would be inflation, because a server could potentially inflate the currency without having to change my receipt. So we prevent that using auditors and voting pools. Remember, the original purpose of the voting pool is to be able to safely store the Bitcoin so the server can't steal it. And you have all these different notaries in the pool, and they're all voting whether or not to release funds out of the pool. And because of that, they're all also auditing each other in real time because that's what prevents each other from committing inflation. Because I, I can't trust to allow you to pull funds out of the pool unless I know for a fact that you're not inflating. So all these entities have a natural incentive to audit each other in real time to prevent inflation. And that way, not only can the servers not falsify any receipts, but they also can't inflate the currency. And of course, they also can't steal the money out of the pool. Well, it's sounding to me that, that open transactions and the blockchain actually are very complementary to each other then. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the blockchain is actually an essential component of our system, even if you were going to use it for non-Bitcoin-based currencies. Well, because it, it's that distributed consensus right. uh, that you need. You know, it, So you've got the auditors, but then you're, you're in effect settling to the blockchain, and that's where you, you get the, the distributed consensus of the, the funds moving. Yeah, like, for example, let's say that you weren't going to use Bitcoin at all. Let's say you wanted to use euros. So the euros would be issued as colored coins, and we would still use the blockchain to move these euros around. We would still use voting pools to safely store these euros. And so the blockchain would still be an essential component, even if the users are all just using euros. And that's actually a big part of our plans, is to issue other currencies onto the blockchain via colored coins. And these currencies will be stored in Monotas voting pools, and they'll be traded on markets and so on and so forth. So what's the entire suite of tools that we're looking at in Monotas? We got, like, checks and currency and Chamian Cash. Maybe you can explain what that is. Uh, just, you know, what, what's the suite of tools in this, uh, this applied financial cryptography that, that you're building out? Well, you have the ability to issue currencies based on currency contracts. So you drop a Ricardian contract and issue currency units based on that. We also have the ability to issue currencies based on colored coins. So you could create a, a currency contract and issue colored coin units onto the blockchain, and then you can trade those inside the Monotas software as well. And once you've issued currency units, now you have the ability for users to open accounts. 
denominated in those currencies. So I might open a dollar account or a euro account or a Bitcoin account. And then you have, of course, market trading. So if I want to convert one currency to another currency on a market, then I go in and place market orders or limit orders and so on and, and do trades. And then we also have a variety of financial instruments like checks, vouchers, and like you said, Chami and Cash, which is the uh, untraceable digital cash that they got so much press back in the 90s. And we also have scriptable smart contracts, which means that parties can get together and make customized agreements with little scripts in them and then sign the agreement. They all sign it and activate it inside Monotas, and then it'll automatically process according to its terms. A good example of how you might use that is for escrow agreements. You can make a custom escrow agreement with some other parties and sign it and activate it. And so basically you get a lot more functionality than you would just have in your Bitcoin client by itself, which is the same reason people use a lot of Bitcoin services today. So th this is really complicated work, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you've got close to 30 employees over at Monitas doing this very complicated work. Yes. Why are you guys in Switzerland? Like, why aren't you in the, the financial capital of the world? Why aren't you in New York? Well, I mean, that's certainly the financial capital of the 20th century, but what's going to happen in the 21st century remains to be seen. And um, I, I guess I give a couple examples to show why we actually had no choice but to locate in Switzerland. The first example I'd like to use is uh, Marissa Myers, the CEO of Yahoo. And she was recently on a panel, or she's up on stage at a conference somewhere, and they asked her, well, why, don't, why didn't you tell us that you were spying on us for the NSA? How come you never said anything about it? And her answer was, uh, they threatened us with prison. Uh, if I said anything about it, then I'm violating, you know, classified top secrets. Uh, this this uh, national security letter that they give her, if she, if she says anything about it publicly, then she can be put in jail for this. So she's not, not only does she have to cooperate, but she's not allowed to say anything to anyone about how the fact that she's having to cooperate. That she's been co-opted. Yeah, like basically that was her answer was, I couldn't say anything. I, I would have gone to prison if I had said anything. Um, and now let, let's look at another example, uh, Hushmail. So Hushmail, they have a service where you can encrypt your email on the client side and then it's stored on the Hushmail server in encrypted form. So the Hushmail company can't read it. And then it goes to the recipient and then it's decrypted on the recipient's computer. And so if, uh, if the government goes to Hushmail and says, hey, let me read this guy's email, the answer from Hushmail would be, oh, well, you can't read this because it's encrypted. We'll give it to you. We'll give you the encrypted mail, but you, we can't open it and you certainly can't open it. And the answer that came back to Hushmail from the government was, well, then what you need to do is you need to install malicious software on the user's computer and get their key. So like normally if a Hushmail user gets good, clean, safe software on their computer, but for this guy, we want you to download malicious software on his computer and get that key so now we can read his mail. And Hushmail basically had no choice but to comply. Another good example of this is LavaBit. LavaBit was the email provider for Edward Snowden. And at some point, uh, we all remember in the news, suddenly LavaBit's founder um, shut the company down. And people asked him, why did you shut the company down? But he wasn't really allowed to explain why. 
And the, the answer he gave was sort of cryptic. He said, I've been placed in a position where my only choice is to shut down a company that I worked on for 10 years of my life or become complicit in crimes against the American people. And given that choice, I had no choice but to shut the company down. But he didn't exactly say what it was, uh, because if he did, he could go to jail. Basically, they served him with a letter saying, put some malicious software on the user's computer, get his key so we can read his email. And they actually wanted him to do that company-wide for his entire company. And he's not allowed to publicly say this. And so his only choice, he felt, was to just shut the company down. And that's what he did. Now, now let's look at my company, Monitas. Monitas... You're not dealing with email. You're dealing with money. Right. We're dealing with people's money. Well, actually, we're just a software company. We're not touching anyone's money, right? But the people who use our software will be using our software to deal with their own money. Let's say that someone's using the Monitas wallet on his computer, and he's got his private key. And if whoever gets their hands on that private key gains control over his money. We could not allow ourselves to be in a position where, you know, a gun is put to our head and we're forced to download a malicious version of our software onto someone's computer uh, where their key could be taken. And even if the government did this with the best of intentions, that doesn't mean that some hacker isn't going to get in there and get that key as well. I mean, if, if there's a back door, there's a back door. And so... We've already seen several times in the United States that a company can be forced in secret to put malicious software on their users' computers that could give the government access to that user's private key. And we just didn't want to ever be in the position where we were in we were in that position. You know, we just didn't ever want to be in that position where someone could force us to put malicious software onto a user's computer uh, so that someone else, some attacker, could gain a copy of that user's private key. We felt like Switzerland was a place where we're not going to be subjected to that kind of pressure. The privacy is actually built into the Swiss Constitution. Privacy rights. Well, it's built into the U.S. Constitution, too, but that doesn't make any difference. Well... Yeah, right I mean, against unreasonable searches and seizures, but you're talking about compromising the private keys on encryption for entire companies. You yeah. know, blanket, blanket uh, general warrants. That's true. The U.S. Constitution does have some privacy protections, but we have seen in practice, especially over the past few years, that companies can be subjected to coercion to steal their users' private keys. And we have not seen that in Switzerland. So do you think that this bodes poorly for the U.S. tech industry in general? Because the U.S. tech industry has been the major engine of growth over the last 20 years for the U.S. economy. Do you think they're going to be losing that dominance because they're no longer a jurisdiction that you can develop in safely? I can't predict the future, but I can certainly say that we didn't feel that we could produce software there. We didn't feel that for what we're doing, that we could take that risk of being an American company and potentially being coerced to put malicious software on our users' computers. And so we're employing our people in Switzerland. And paying Swiss lawyers and paying Swiss taxes. Yep. And Swiss software developers. And Swiss software developers. Swiss office rent and so on. Yeah, this is this is very interesting because one of the reasons I like Armory so much is that it's open source software that people run on their own computers as opposed to services like BitGo or Coinbase or even blockchain.info where you could 
have those services compromised in some of these ways you've talked about, and then your your private keys to the Bitcoins could actually be compromised. Right. So with Monetas, the users, are, are they going to be able to control all of their private keys on these offline type devices just like Armory has? Yeah, I mean, the user is certainly going to have his private key on the client side, and the, the future, the way that this industry is going, not just for Monetas, but for all cryptocurrencies, all cryptocurrency companies, is going to be hardware wallets, smart cards, this sort of thing where the Trusted private, computing. Yeah, trusted computing, exactly. The private key will be stored in some device where a hacker cannot steal it because otherwise, see right now we're in, a, we're in an age where hackers target the central server and try and hack the central server. Once like the, central, the Target or the uh, J.P. Morgan or look at Mt. Gox, Home Depot. Right? Let's say that Mt. Gox, Mt. Gox was hacked. Let's say they were hacked. Right? No one really knows what happened, but let's say they were hacked. That's let's assume he didn't abscond with all the. Bitcoin. That, that's certainly the story, right? That, that they were hacked. And so let's say once you have monetized voting pools, the server is not able to take the funds, and so so it's no longer an attack. Service. Yeah, so then the next thing is that the hackers are going to start targeting the clients. And I already know one guy um, who he had a Bitcoin wallet on his on his phone and he had $30,000 worth of Bitcoin stolen off of his phone. And so that there will be hackers targeting people's client devices. And that's where trusted computing is going to come into play. And there's going to be hardware wallets, smart cards, these sorts of things. And that that's the future. And that's that's what we're looking towards as well on the client side. Well, this has been a fascinating interview. Uh, we're a little bit short. I have a panel to attend on Bitcoin wallets, ironically. So is there any any parting advice or, or any parting things you'd like to kind of leave with the audience? Trust no one. Trust no one at all. Mathematically prove everything. <laughs> that, that's the solution, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, once, once the Monotoss notaries and voting pools are out and being used... You're going to have a choice to use a server who might be able to steal your money versus a server who's not able to steal your money. And I think I think there's going to be a lot of competitive pressure for servers to operate Monotoss software for that reason. Yeah, and people people trust seem to trust everyone. Uh, now the G20 bail-ins for pensions, bail-ins for banks, as we've already seen, if they can touch the private keys to your assets, whether they're your retirement accounts, your real estate, your cars, like your stocks, your bonds, whatever it is, they're going to take it because they're so far in debt. Trust no one. There's going to be a lot of people with IRAs and 401ks that find themselves involuntarily investing in treasury bonds. They used to not really have an option, but now they do. They can trust no one. They can trust math. And so if you're staying in those pension funds or you're staying in those 401ks or IRAs or those other assets, you're really kind of just being greedy, aren't you? It's kind of like keeping your money in Mt. Gox so that you can earn the extra premium on the trade, but not watching the steamroller that's coming down the road as you're picking up the pennies. Yeah, I mean, it's always the first guy out who's sipping champagne and eating strawberries. Yeah. So anyways, that's uh, I think that is just awesome advice. Trust no one. Trust the math. Chris Odom, CTO at Monetas. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. 
got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at Bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate. Thank <laughs> you.